The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The war in Ukraine taking center stage when the United Nations General Assembly meets in New York. And the packed agenda escalating tensions with China and Russia's war in Ukraine launched early last year. But some key players are expected to skip that gathering, specifically four out of the five permanent members of the Security Council, China, the UK, France and Russia. The high-level talks about economics, energy, trade, and war at the UN this week highlight the geopolitical schisms that are reshaping the balance of power in the world and increasingly forcing nations to choose sides. But not just nations, corporations too are looking at the shifting political map when they make decisions that will impact their business for decades like where to build a new factory. A just-released Bloomberg analysis puts numbers to these decisions for the first time. It shows how political divides, like those exposed by Russia's war in Ukraine and increasing tensions between the U.S. and China, are also disrupting decades of commercial relationships. And it reveals how the world is splitting into economic blocks that resemble political fault lines. A lot has happened in the last five years in the global economy. It started, I think, with the trade wars between the US and China. What we've seen is that when you look at trade numbers, you can already see some decoupling happening between the countries. That's Bloomberg economist Meva Cousin. She and senior economics writer Sean Donnan are here to talk about how companies are seeking to insulate themselves from political turmoil. We know that companies hate uncertainty. So we have a kind of level of uncertainty that is being created by governments that is just making it harder to do business in the world. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, when politics and business collide. Sean, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back here. So, you know, we've been hearing for years about how companies put factories where they can manufacture their goods cheaply or put them closer to their customers so they don't have to have long supply chains. But what's so fascinating about the story that you and Mava, along with our colleagues Enda Kern and Jenna Hawk wrote, is that there are so many more hidden factors into where companies choose to do their business these days. And they're new factors, right? So for decades, the decisions that CEOs and boards made in terms of where they were allocating their capital, the big business bets that they were making were based on returns and profits. And where's the big market? Where can I sell underarm deodorant? Where can I sell a car? Where can I make the biggest buck? And what we're seeing in the last few years and This is something that's really confounding economists because it's not the way it's supposed to happen in a normal economy. This is not how they teach economics in college. 
is that geopolitics is starting to drive decisions. And that is a whole new ball game. And we're just starting to be able to kind of see the data. And that's what we've tried to do with the story. And Mava, this question of how politics is driving some of the decisions that big companies make is very hard to measure, which is why what you've done in the story is so new. Yeah, that's very right. It's difficult to measure. We are used to measure things like the size of the economy, the distance between countries, the tariffs that exist, even non-tariff barriers when there are some regulations that make it difficult to import and export. But the geopolitics, and in particular the concerns about geopolitical tension and the fact that maybe in the future there could be restrictions, there could be export controls and bans, this is much harder to measure. So we can start to see in the data that this is having an impact. We can use some proxies. We've used UN votes in the UN resolution on whether to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've used those voting patterns as a proxy to understand the geopolitical similarities between countries. But you're right, it's actually something that's much more intangible than standard economic tools. Sean, what gave you the idea to look at this? What was the thing that made you think, huh, it looks like geopolitics getting into the middle of these decisions? We've been trying to think about all of the different things that are happening out there in the global economy and how it's being shaped. And we're trying to get our head around what's really happening to globalization in the world. And what was clear and what we're starting to hear from more and more economists is that geopolitics was a thing. Now, that's kind of obvious. We've heard here in Washington, people every day are talking about China and the competition with China. In Europe, likewise, they are exercised by this. Certainly in China, China feels under assault and is trying to build new alliances. We know that geopolitics is shaping the world, but it's harder to get a hold on how you actually measure capital decisions, capital allocation decisions, which is big and important to us at Bloomberg, right? Because that's kind of what we write about. And that's when we started noticing that a lot of economists were starting to latch on to UN voting patterns and other measures of geopolitics. People look at the number of mentions on earning calls of the word geopolitics. So far this year, there's been some 12,000 mentions by executives of Standard & Poor's 500 companies. These are the world's largest companies, and that's three times what it was just two years ago. Economists have looked at other trading relationships, arms sales, or other kind of measures of geopolitical proximity, whether you're members of the G7, for example, or the G20 or different blocs. And there is this whole effort by economists to try and understand this new force, and this seemed like the cleanest way for us to do it. Mava, can you tell us exactly what the numbers show, what you were looking for, and what you found? We looked in particular at what we call greenfield foreign direct investment. That's investment in new projects, in factories that will sometimes take years to build. So that's really the sort of decision today about where you want to do business in the future. And so this is companies deciding where they want to build a new plant. So Toyota, should they build it in China, the U.S. or Mexico? That's right. That's exactly what we've been looking at in this World Investment Report. What we did is that we focused on those uh, greenfield investment reports and we looked at where the new flows of investments were going. And we focused in particular on whether countries had been voting 
to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2023 in the United Nations, or if they had voted against condemning the invasion or abstained. And what we noticed is that the share of those new projects that was going to countries that did not condemn the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, this share of new investment going to those countries has fallen very substantially. It was about 30% of all investment in the decade to 2019. By 2022, it was only 15%. And within those countries, there are two big losers. One is Russia. In 2022, they received no investment at all, no new investment at all. That means no investment from the US or Europe, but that also means no investment from China, for example, which is quite striking, I find. And the other big loser, China. So in the decade 2019, China was receiving on average about 10% of all the flows of new investment in new projects. In 2022, they received less than 2%. So we really see this sort of decisions, companies deciding that they don't want to invest at the moment in those countries anymore. Sean, let's pull that apart just a little bit. Why did you focus in particular on this vote about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Why was that such an important dividing line when looking at investment decisions about where to put factories? We know that Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine was the great geopolitical moment of the last couple of years. And so where countries position themselves on that, whether they choose to condemn the vote or just simply abstained, told you a lot about their thinking and how they were kind of positioning themselves and their alliances, their geopolitical alliances. So there's that. To be clear, we're not saying in this that the only reason people are moving their factories is because of the war in Ukraine. There are other reasons why people are choosing to invest in the United States or in Western Europe, including a whole surge in industrial policy and subsidies that we've seen here in the United States in particular. We also know that China in 2021 and 2022 was largely shut down because of a zero COVID policy that was putting off a lot of foreign investors. But there is a clear divide at the same time that is happening in the world. And we see it in summits of leaders. We see it in different policy areas in Washington, efforts to try and stop technological exports to China, for example, the export of semiconductors and semiconductor making equipment to China. So we know this broader geopolitical tensions are happening. We're just using this vote to kind of sort through this data. And Mava, what does the data tell us about how much the war in Ukraine is driving investment decisions versus the war in Ukraine exposing divisions that were there even before? It's a very good question, and a lot has happened in the last five years in the global economy. It started, I think, with the trade wars between the U.S. and China. What we've seen is that when you look at trade numbers, you can already see some decoupling happening between the countries. When you look at trade numbers, you have a very clear cut in 2018 with the start of the trade wars between the U.S. and China. U.S. imports from China have fallen 35% across all the tariff products. So that's a big gap. At the same time, China's imports from the U.S. have also fallen. They have fallen for tariff products, but they also have declined. And that's what Sean was saying, all those semiconductors related technology. Some of it is likely directly linked to export restrictions imposed by the U.S. on Huawei, 
on SMIC from October 2022, the sort of broad-based export restrictions on semiconductor technologies. But some of it is probably geopolitical decoupling. Is China trying to move away in this very strategic technology? Actually, if you were to look at Russia as well, you can see that Russia was already starting to decouple Western economies since 2014, since the invasion of Crimea and the start of sanctions. So clearly, for me, the UN votes and the invasion of Ukraine and votes around the invasion of Ukraine have actually crystallized some of the growing divisions and tensions that were already brewing under the surface in the global economy. Sean, so we have this broad divide that you show in this story. And we know, of course, there's China on one side, the U.S. on the other, but there's every other country in between. What is the divide? Which countries are on each side? On one side, you have, you know, the big Western economies, the United States, Europe, Asian allies like Japan and South Korea. And on the other side, you have China and a lot of developing countries. And to be clear, there are a lot of countries that are trying to have a bet both ways, right? And this is actually an interesting set of economies that we're going to be looking further at. Countries like India, Vietnam, that abstained when it came to this big United Nations vote that we've been looking at that has kind of crystallized this geopolitical divide. And at the same time, they're trying to have strategic relationships with the United States as well. President Biden was recently in Vietnam and India, and in both of those visits was trying very hard to strengthen the relationship there. And likewise, the leaders of India and Vietnam were very happy to see the American president there. At the same time, they're trying to kind of maintain a relationship with China and so on. So, you know, these are not clean blocks, right? We should also be clear that these are not equal blocks. About two-thirds of the global economy is on the kind of U.S. and G7 side. About a third of the world economy is on the Russia-China side, if you will. One of the ways you can really track what is happening in this divide in the global economy is how folks have voted at the United Nations on whether to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine or not. After the break, which countries have the most to win and lose in this shifting global structure? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Maybe Sean said earlier that on earnings calls, when executives of big companies talk about their performance, they've been talking about global tensions quite a lot. What are some of the companies that were caught up in all of this, that are making these decisions in part based on global politics? What I found fascinating in the latest World Investment Report is really the weight of semiconductors in those decisions. It's fascinating to see that greenfield projects, so new projects in fabs, in semiconductor factories, have jumped by about 200%, multiplied by three, since 2019 or 2020. And in fact, you can see that companies like TSMC, 
based in Taiwan, one of the geopolitical hotspots, who used to have factories mostly in Taiwan and mainland China, is building factories in the US, in Japan, and is in talks to build in Germany. And it's not just semiconductors, right? We've been talking a lot since the pandemic about the importance of semiconductors to building everything from cars to cell phones to washing machines. If you listen to the earnings calls and you look at the transcripts, what you see is Wall Street giants like BlackRock and Larry Fink, their chairman, talking about geopolitics and how it's going to hit returns. These forces include a fragmented geopolitical landscape causing a rewiring supply chains a transition to a lower carbon economy, and the aging population in the developed world, all of which are likely to be inflationary over time. You see big consumer giants like Coca-Cola and Tesla and Elon Musk talking about geopolitics. You also see big industrial companies like 3M talking about geopolitics and worrying about it. It's hard to find a big company right now that isn't thinking about geopolitics in a way that they just weren't a few years ago. And what do they say on those calls? What are their specific concerns when they talk about geopolitics? The first concern is this is a big risk, right? We are worried that a big geopolitical event and that these geopolitical tensions could affect our ability to do business in the world. The second thing they say is we are working to reorganize our supply chains because of the geopolitical risk. And we don't want our supply chains to be caught up in a big geopolitical event. And the third thing they say is, we're trying to very hard to find a way around geopolitics. And so Elon Musk in July, when he was talking to Tesla investors, had this fascinating line where he said, look, this is a really strange period in terms of geopolitical tensions in the world. The best we can do is, you know, have factories in many parts of the world such that if things get difficult in one part of the world, we, um, you know, we can still keep things going in the rest of the world. And we're seeing him do that, right? Elon Musk has factories in Texas. He has factories in China, outside Shanghai. He's building a big new factory just outside Berlin. And he's got a big factory in Mexico as well that's under development. And he, like a lot of big companies and like a lot of CEOs, is making sure that he is both respecting these new geopolitical interests, but also finding a way to kind of survive this geopolitical time as well. Meva, earlier you talked about how Russia and China are some of the bigger losers in this new divide. Who are the winners? Who are inheriting new companies, new factories, where before they wouldn't have gotten that business? I think so far what we've seen is that some of the big winners are actually in the G7. The United States is the country that has seen the greatest increase in its new projects. Germany, Italy. So clearly at the moment, I guess it's a bit of a flight to safety. Going to the sort of very safe place, the blocks are starting to get identified, but I think it's still a bit in flux. And so I guess that's maybe why at the moment companies are choosing the sort of safe bets and going where they really know on which side it's going to fall. That's the big winners. In our data, we can see other winners. We know that, for example, some countries have taken up some of the slack left by China in U.S. imports. We know it's actually quite a lot of ASEAN countries. It's Thailand, it's Vietnam. It's also India. So you see two countries that actually didn't vote to condemn 
Russia's invasion have taken up a lot of the stock in the U.S. And there's another important point to make here, which is on the kind of loser side, and this is what a lot of economists and smart people really worry about, and that is the story of globalization over the last half century has been one of, yes, production shifting from places like the United States to Mexico and China, but it's also been shifting and manufacturing has been growing rapidly in other poor countries, developing countries. And that has meant for the world a huge reduction in poverty. There are far fewer people living in extreme poverty in the world today than there were 50 years ago. That said, if you look forward now, if geopolitics is this big influence and we are doing this thing that some people call friend shoring, right? We're putting factories in friendly countries. A lot of those friendly countries are other rich countries. That means that that investment is not going to poor countries. That means that those poor countries are likely to stay poorer for longer. It's likely to increase inequality in the world. It's going to increase poverty in the world. And that is going to lead to all sorts of other problems. And so if you are sitting at the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank and you are looking out at the global economy beyond these rich economies, you are worrying about the impact of this fragmentation on the world. And Sean, about three decades ago, we saw another bipolar system come crashing down with the collapse of the Soviet Union. How does what's happening now compare to that? It's really tempting to say this is the new Cold War, right? The U.S. and China, there's going to be an iron curtain descending on the world. And that is not what we are saying in this piece. We're not talking about a new Eastern Bloc and Western Bloc because the world is just so much more complicated than it was then. The fact is that the U.S. and China still have an incredibly complicated and pretty rich economic relationship. Gina Romendo, the Secretary of Commerce, was just in China literally trying to sell Boeing aircraft to the Chinese. U.S. still wants to sell to China and vice versa. Now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, that Iron Curtain may be a lot harder than what we envision now. But if there is an Iron Curtain coming down on the world right now, it's really porous. It's really easy to get around and, and walk through even. I think one thing I find quite interesting is the return of export controls and export bans. Wielding the economic weapon for geopolitical purposes, it's something that more or less had disappeared since the United States actually decided they could start selling pieces to the USSR at the time. So that was, for me, it's one of the proper like Cold War type tool. So it's quite interesting and a little bit worrying to see it coming back in this sort of trade policies. When we come back, what will this emerging system mean for the things we buy and how much they cost? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Is there any upside to the world being divided into different economic blocks? 
you know, I've been talking with economists at the IMF about this who've been doing a whole series of deep dives into different parts of the global economy and looking at the impact of a fragmenting world. And they will tell you, we've looked at it many different ways, and we don't see a scenario where the global economy as a whole gains. We see this is something that destroys kind of economic output in the world. In the worst case, if you had a kind of hard iron curtain, if you had a real Cold War, it would be the equivalent of wiping out the French and German economies from the global economy right now. It's about 7% of the global economy. It's huge. From a pure economic perspective, it's going to be costly. How costly, it's quite difficult to know. But we had done some estimates using a large-scale model, and we had estimated that if we had a 25% tariff between the two blocks of countries, we would probably see trade flows fall by about 20% relative to what they are today. And 20% that would take us back to the early 2000s, so just before China joined the World Trade Organization. Based on our estimate of past relationship between trade integration and growth, we think it could reduce global GDP by about 3.5%, that it would be relatively broad-based because in some places, producers would lose. In some places, consumers would lose. But generally, everyone would be a bit worse off. So you can see how a politician would make a decision based on a certain set of circumstances. But for a company that is really trying to make decisions based on how it's going to affect their business, is there any concern that because it's so hard to measure it, they're going to get it wrong? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the people I called when we were working on this story is a woman called Penny Goldberg, who is a former chief economist at the World Bank. She's now at Yale. She's one of the world's leading trade economists and experts on globalization. And she made a really good point. She said, geopolitics is man-made uncertainty. And we know that companies hate uncertainty. So we have a kind of level of uncertainty that is being created by governments that is just making it harder to do business in the world today. We have a very recent example that kind of illustrates it all. Look at how quickly sanctions went into place on Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. We saw McDonald's pull out in a matter of weeks. The fast food chain will sell its Russian business and take a write-off of up to $1.4 billion. McDonald's said that in the wake of the war in Ukraine, continued ownership of the business in Russia is not consistent with the company's values. We saw other companies pull out their employees in a matter of days after the invasion. We have seen the Russian economy shut off by Western banks. The reality is geopolitics can change things very quickly. And big companies, whether it's Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Walmart, Tesla, can feel the impact very quickly. Mava, for listeners, say, living in the U.S. on one side of this block or a listener in Beijing on the other side of the block, what would you tell them about how it's going to affect them? Just people going about their lives, trying to make ends meet? buying products? What does it mean for average people? I think in the U.S., generally, it means that there are greater risks that consumers may face some shortage or some inflation as their products, products that used to be imported from China, get relocated or resourced from a different country. And we know that sometimes it can be difficult so I think that's probably the sort of thing that may happen. 
I wouldn't uh, tell them to run to the shop and hold. <laughs> I think they will be fine. But generally, I think that's a sort of greater risk for the sort of households risk in the US, maybe a bit more inflation volatility. In China, I imagine risk probably lies more with the producers. It means that depending on how it goes, so far China has managed, we know they have lost market shares in the US. So far they have managed to recover those market shares. I think it means that maybe China's market share in other parts of the US analyzed world could become a bit more constrained. And that could probably mean some jobs might be lost. So that's probably more a, a job risk rather than a consumption risk in China. And, you know, in the background of your question is a world where we see the two economic giants on two very different economic paths right now. So China's economy is slowing and it's facing some huge structural problems like actually a declining population, an aging population in a way that the United States is not in the same way. It has recovered more slowly from the pandemic than the United States. There are a lot of people in Washington and other Western capitals now who see China not as a kind of endlessly rising power, but as one that is starting to either peak or kind of decline. So that is a very different path. The United States has recovered incredibly quickly from the pandemic in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of problems on the ground. Inflation's still very real for a lot of families and so on. But we have a job market an unemployment rate that is at historic lows. And the Biden administration would argue that there's all of this investment in the future. That means that the U.S. economy is going to be growing vigorously for a long time. And that is going to be felt by families in the longer term, right? It may not be you and me who feel it at, you know, in the grocery line or when we go out to buy our, our new iPhones or cars. It's going to be maybe our kids who feel it in a different way. And once upon a time, the story was that by the time my kids were entering the workforce, China would be the world's largest economy and they would be competing in, in a very different way with China. It's not so clear that that's going to be the case anymore and vice versa for young Chinese people. Sean, Mava, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Michael Falero and Mo Barrow. Rafael M. Seeley is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.